0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehilat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study.
1: We are in Parsha Kitisa this morning, which puts us at Exodus chapter 30, being that we are in the first triennial reading. We begin at the beginning of every Parsha this year and read the first third of every Parsha. Um, parsha kitisa we read a lot. Actually, we read from Parsha kitisa a lot. Kitisa is most known for the incident with the golden calf. Cow. Oh. Golden calf. Oh. The, technically, the molten calf. Because probably it was not gold. Probably it was... Gold leaf over wood. A wonderful parallel is that, of course, the Aron HaKodesh, the ark that's in the Kodesh Kedoshim, is also wood with gold leaf. But right? you miss the power of the juxtaposition of those two things if you think of it as a solid gold cow. Right? You miss the whole point is we have the Aron gilded. And we have wood you know, with a space in the center gilded with gold. And then we have wood completely filled with itself, gilded with gold, right? And there, there are the two bookends that we're images that we're dealing with uh, when we're looking at the issue of the molten calf. But we're not going to look at that today. We are going to look at the first third of the Parsha. So we're going to start at 3011 if someone would like to
2: begin. Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, When you take a census, census of the Israelite men according to their army enrollment, each shall pay Adonai a ransom for himself on being enrolled, that no plague may come upon them through their being enrolled. This is what everyone who is entered in the record shall pay, a half a shekel by the sanctuary rate, weight, 20 gerah, I. Geraz to the shekel, a half shekel as an offering to Adonai. Everyone who has entered in the records from the age of 20 years up shall give Adonai offering. The rich shall not pay more and the poor shall not pay less than a half a shekel when giving Adonai offering as an expiation for your persons. You shall take the expiation money from the Israelites and assign it to the students in Tent of Meeting. It shall serve the Israelites as a reminder before I, as expiation for your persons.
1: All right, thank you. So we are getting here the uh, counting, right, of people, males, 20 years old and older. How do we know that?
3: It it so? no. Yes. Because
1: yes. yes. <laughs> it says so. Oh, right, it does say so. Sorry.
3: Because
1: uh, um, it says so. Yes, it does, doesn't it? Um, but our tip off is the- <laughs> um,
4: our tip off is the
1: service, right? Military service, right? So these are everybody who would have been uh, eligible for military service. When there is a call for everyone who's eligible to serve in the military, to bring a half shekel, what's usually about to happen? War. War. You only do a census like that when there is some kind of need to assess your fighting strength. Right? So you put this tax that A, helps you raise money for the war effort, and B, gives you a a clearer indication of your fighting force. Right? So the census is always... um, Either it's gonna be war or it is a way to figure out how many people you have for the purposes of taxation. In either case, it is a very anxious thing, right? When you have a census, it's generally very anxious in the ancient world. Um, Because something, it's just, it's not good for the people. It means either they're gonna go to war um, or they're about to have a new tax levied, which usually means the government's broke And things are bad, or they're going to get bad, right? And this is the beginning of all sorts of ways we're going to have to now pay. Um, So, I mean, like Solomon heavily taxed the people with the building of the temple. Heavily taxed them. And the nation-state collapsed. After Solomon, the nation-state collapses. And we have northern Israel, and we have Judah. They are never again united. So... um, I by you know, like independently now, a, a, a nation state again, the north and south together. So, so people had every right reason to be anxious in the ancient world when there's a census. And so, whenever we see a census, it's like whoop whoop, right? You're know, like alarm, alarm, alarm. And in the Torah text, it is considered chutzpahik to take a census unless it is ordered. Um, so in Torah, God always orders the census to be taken, uh, and when David does it, it is a very serious, right? right. It says, "When you," though. It doesn't say mm-hmm.
3: "you shall" or "you will." It says, "When you,"
1: right? Because because the 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 money that get, not the money, but the actual weight. It, these are not coins, right? This is a, a weight of silver, is going to be. Collected. These are all the instructions. Later, we're going to see it implemented, right? Because it's going to be used to build the mishkan,
3: right? I'm just wondering where the imminence is. How is how
1: is war imminent if it's if it's a when? It, it, It war isn't imminent. Right, So taking a census yes. is, is usually an indicator right, right. that something bad is about to happen. So there's, there's all this anxiety nice. whenever... I was just trying to give a background of... It's not just like for us taking a census and someone comes to your door okay. with a you know notebook and asks you, what, you know, what's your age and what's your occupation. It, it is usually terribly anxiety-provoking. Okay. And in Torah, even more so um, that it is God who has to order... A census to be taken. Um, and it's not happening here, right? This is the instruction, like Julie points out, this is the instruction for when it's going to happen later when the Mishkan is built. You're going to take Moses, a census of the people, and you're going to get uh, this half shekel weight of silver from each of them so that it can be melted down to make the. anybody know what it's going to make? The sockets the sockets that hold all of the boards together.
4: How much was a half a shekel? What,
1: was that a great deal of money or a small amount of money? Um, I don't know, it doesn't seem. It says the poor ex- the rich. It doesn't seem extravagant because the poor can give it. Yeah. Right, right. The, if the poor can give it, it seems to suggest. But I was just wondering if the poor didn't enter the army then. There is no army here. Okay. This is not a census for battle. Okay. Often it would have been, but you were going anyway. Whether you were poor or wealthy, you were you were going. Amy, what what's a sock? What do you mean a socket? What's that? So if you think about the Mishkan, the actual the actual structure is planks of wood that were leafed in gold, right? More wood leafed in gold, um, and they they're not going to stand up by themselves. They have to be held together attached to each other by something. So, it's say soffit? socket, or Sockets. Soffit, socket, socket yeah. whatever it is. I mean, it's the so- socket. Soffit is what holds
4: together like a socket. A socket.
1: It's, the- it's, a, socket in a, it, it's a socket that something
4: goes into. It's And it's a socket that some kind of a rod goes yeah.
0: into.
1: Okay. I think okay. like nothing. Okay. Yeah, so it's part of the okay. so that, mechanism. So that each socket. plank, yeah. according to the Torah text, so that each plank is attached to its sister. So the men are going to bring half shekel of silver, so that each plank can be attached to its sister. Very interesting. But Um, you you don't know that until right until we see. I mean, we're getting all the instructions. Was there anything in the
0: past that, uh, like the the previous parsha, that would give a clue that this is going that God is going to do something here or?
1: Well, well, we're getting all the instructions about building the mishkan. We're getting the instructions of the garments for the priests. We're getting the instructions for how to consecrate everything and how to consecrate the priests. And now we're going to get some interesting stuff about the laver and the incense altar. So, so and it's a continuation. Yeah, so we're in the middle of all of these instructions. And just, here's another one you're going to take When it's time, you're going to take a census of the people with half a shekel of silver from males 20 years old and up. The reason I want to give you this sense of how dreadful it is is because you can see the language. Where do we usually see this language, this shoresh of kaf, pe, resh? Um, Uh,
4: Yom Kippur.
1: Yom Kippur, kapara. Why is that here? What, what, I mean, kapara is... Uh, so, so himself,
0: sir. Yeah, hmm? Yeah, expiation
1: Expiation It's like this is It's like you're going to give the half shekel So that Something doesn't happen to you Is the sense of kippir Here, right? It takes the place of what should happen To you Where is kippir? So 16. in uh, verse 12 when you take a census so of Israel, is. people according to their enrollment, each shall pay right the Adonai a ransom. Okay. Kofair is the first place we see it in this parsha, right? Kofar show. so a yeah. third line, a you know kapara if you will, right, for their nefesh, for themselves, right, so that no plague may come upon them. Through their being enrolled, because you're not supposed to count, right? Only God can order the count, or something really, really bad is gonna
0: happen. In, in Yiddish, kapora is
1: a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Yes and no. It's a, it is a kind of sacrifice, but, but the sacrifice is achieving kapara. The sacrifice is the zevach, right? It, there are other words for the sacrifice. Kapara is what the sacrifice achieves. Right? That, that's what giving this half shekel is going to do, which is, and it's totally exactly connected to what sacrifice does, is kapara. It, it effects an expiation, meaning something comes off of you and goes on it. The other PhD topic I'm going to do someday is, is this word. Like, it's a very interesting word, and it's a very interesting evolution of the term to where we are at atonement. Right? We talk about the Day of Atonement, like that's so clear. Yom Kippur. Yom HaKippurim. It's so clear that it's about atonement. Mm-hmm. Like, Sorta. Of, right? It has this very intense and rich history underneath all of that that's kind of. Of paying to keep yourself safe. Of somehow shifting something off of you that you otherwise can't shift because it's just it's what it is it's fear based
3: I mean it's a little fear based
1: it's superstitious and yeah it can also
5: be thought of as insurance
1: mm-hmm. in terms of indemnity <laughs> right You write going to get insurance over it's over and it's off of me right um, but there's a way that Boy, don't you wish. <laughs> well, don't reminds you wish me we had, the, had that? Um,
6: I love that. That's the ritual that you <laughs> described with yeah. like the baby that
1: yeah. people would do. With Pigeon, Pigeon Habein, Habein, the redemption of the <laughs> first time. What about yeah. the uh, um, ritual of
0: and Kaporis? Did that fit in
1: there? and Kaporis, 100%. Because what do you do when you're kaporas? Kaporis? You put, if the person's not there, you put their clothes on the bed. But if the person's there, what do you do? I don't know. You take a chicken A live chicken You swing it over the head of the person And then you snap its neck That's lovely How is that kappa Wait. <laughs> That's kappa That is expiation That somehow you, know, you take this live thing And you designate That it is now taking upon itself Whatever should have happened To this person And now And then you have dinner I have a question. The tabernacle, that's
7: not the Aron HaKodesh? That, that's different. I just want to get the distinction.
1: The Aron HaKodesh is the ark okay, within tabernacle. the tabernacle, in the holy of the holies of the tabernacle. Like the, sanctuary. The, the tabernacle was the portable shrine okay. that they carried, that they set up and broke down, set up and, and broke the ark down. Was inside. And the ark was inside the holy of holies in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle and it held the luchotabrit it held the the tablets of the covenant
5: amy i don't know if you talked about this um, but this this use of the word ransom?
1: kapara again this 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 kafpe resh business
5: it's a, i think it's
1: a bad of ways <laughs> it's what it's
5: not a great choice of words if you're like saying you're paying for protection during this process. So,
1: no, it's a little different than protection. It is something stands in your place. It is ransom. When you ransom a captive, what happens? You give money, the physical person goes free and is not gonna get tortured or made a slave or put in jail. Right. That's exactly what's happening. The sense of kapara is, it seems, um, that you give money and something that was supposed to happen to you doesn't. That's ransom. It stands in your place. Okay. Yes. So, what does it mean that the sockets of the tabernacle, the thing that holds it all together, it's just is paid for by it, it is is it's not expiatory like it came from an expiatory experience. It, it's very interesting to me. And it you wonder if it was intended.
4: I, I mean, right? mean, all these levels to... of
1: it's just. It's very interesting to me. So
4: so we have
1: this... Mm-hmm. Oh, I put myself in um, <laughs> the to, to make us talk about it. So the other thing that's important <laughs> is that it is a, a unit of silver that everyone can afford. So in this sense, it is democratizing the Mishkan project. It is a public works project in that sense. Every Israelite knows that that portable shrine has something of their clan in it, holding it up, holding it together, right? That literally holding it together. That it is the democratizing of the offering that holds all of it together, right? I mean, that's where you have to go okay, did, did, did they get that when they write this? Because that is gorgeous. Right? So we have Nadiv Lave. We have people who can give more and people who don't. We have people who are artisans and they're going to give their skill and other people don't have that. Society's not equal. We know that. They knew that. Right? The offerings we got before were Nadiv Lave, Voluntary, hearted offerings, right? Of whatever that was that you wanted to give. If I'm wealthy, I'm going to give a lot more than somebody else. Um, But this, what holds it up, what keeps it standing is the democratizing aspect of community. That everyone has to <laughs> everyone has to participate or it won't stand. Beautiful.
6: But just to clarify, it's not everyone, it's the Israelite men according to their army enrollment, does that mean of a certain age? Yeah. Just it's just men of a certain
1: age here. Yeah. Yes. So democratizing to some extent, um, okay. but but remember, every family would have had one, right? Right. You're, you're talking about extended family units. We're not talking about the nuclear family right. where I'm an empty nester. It, you know what I mean? And, is and we're right. in it's our 80s, and so family. we don't have to give. It's it's extended clans where every clan would have had to to give for every male that they had, 20 to whatever age. Right. I forget okay. what the what the age cap is. It doesn't say on here. But, but somewhere else, the city 50. It's 50? Yeah. Um, then you're in the reserves. It's very um, reconstruction. It's very reconstructionist, isn't it, Margot Morrison? It's very reconstructionist. there was a different kind of dues schedule. A different kind of due schedule. And we paid, even if you children in religious school, paid for religious. I mean, it was included in your membership, so that was taken care of by people who. The so that the burden didn't fall all on people, only on the, people. the people with children, right? So this is standard dues, right? <laughs> right. Um, actually, this is less than standard dues, because standard dues are hard for some people, right? You know, it seems that this was something that rich and poor alike could could give. Um, I mean, I have what it, what it weighs, but I don't think that tells us what it is relative to its time. Um, but... If you're curious, it's 11.4 grams of of silver for uh, an average weight, think, the shekel weight. All right. So, so anyway, um, what were we just saying? So the this kind of expiatory gift that makes the whole thing stand. All right. Someone read at 17. Adonai spoke to Moses, saying,
6: Make a laver of copper and a stand of copper for it, for washing, and place it between the tent of meeting and the altar. Put water in it, and let Aaron and his sons wash their hands and feet in water drawn from it. When they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water that they may not die. Or when they approach the altar to serve, to turn into smoke an offering by fire to Adonai, they shall wash their hands and feet that they may not die. It shall be a law for all time for them, for him and his
1: offspring throughout the ages. Okay, so this is Exodus 30, verse 17, for those of you who just came in. So we are looking at the laver. What is a laver? A wash basin. A wash basin made out of? Says copper. Says copper. <laughs> Ruben's like, he knows better than to just
2: answer. It's like, it
1: says copper. But I know she's gonna tell us something else. Copper Coppe. 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 Coppe rage copper. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <what. laughs> yeah group that is and, very funny
0: you know, well, it's very important among Jews to, Top, to yeah. have a source to uh, to these uh, yeah. statements written, as they say in Yiddish where does it stand where, where does it say it is where does it <laughs> where is it written there you go so, okay I'm giving you my source <laughs> okay it is written
1: that it is copper so correct so what does one do with the labor what is this for what why do you are they dirty purified for purification of the hands and feet of the hands of, because they are
0: they're, 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 they're special people
1: they're, and they're about to, if they're using this labor they are on their way into to the, service into the to the altar right they are there the, the priests the priests are on their way to service so abuda right so that means they have to be in a state of ritual purity so hands and feet have to be washed we see this still in islam Right? Um, and we also see it when you enter a Catholic church.
7: Yes? Well, also in Orthodox synagogues, when the Kohanim are blessing the congregation.
1: They get washed. At the Duchenem, right. the Levim still wash the feet of the Kohanim. Correct. Before they take the Bima to bless, bless the people. Them. Correct.
4: For well, Abraham, washed the feet of the strangers that
1: came to tent. so there are
4: several different
1: uses of washing in the ancient world the one you're talking about Avraham washing the feet of the guests that is a ritual act of hospitality and welcome so we see Avraham do it we you know we see it throughout we see Jesus do it right this is a sign of humility of the host the Pope. The Pope,
3: right. Presently. Oh,
1: yeah. right? There you go. It is Wash the... Washes his feet. No. The, <laughs> one would <help>. oh, yeah. <laughs> The host washes the feet of the guest to offer hospitality. You have to remember you're talking about the, the ancient Near East, which if you've been in Israel and you've been anywhere near, you know, these places, you know how dusty, how Awfully dusty it is. When I lived in Be'er Sheva, I could not believe three times a day you've had to wash the floor, the tile floor, because it just, it just is, it's everywhere, that that very fine um, desert dust is everywhere. Um, and so if, if you're talking about open shoes, travel was by foot, you know, it just, it, it's the nicest thing in the world, you know, is that when you're done Traveling, and you're there to settle. Someone you know that you clean your feet. Um, so that when the host does it, it's an act of humility, uh, an act of making themselves, in a way, ritually less than their guest. Um, that's one use. The other use in the ancient world is ritual purification, and there, just a second, Carol. There's a, there is a wide human. Remember, we've talked about terrestrial human culture, right? So kind of what's universally the human impulse. And water as a purifying agent, spiritually, ritually, seems to be part of terrestrial human culture. Um, that there is this understanding that water being clean has lots of levels. And that um, mikvah, of course, comes Mikvah is the, the most immersive experience of this. The, you know, that surrounds you completely um, and, and it's in lots and lots of cultures that we see you know, that, that it seems to be a human understanding that this is a transformative agent water not just physically washing stuff away but that it's spiritually transformative so that's, that's what the priests here are doing um, is preparing for serving at the altar this is why uh, in traditional Judaism before you eat you ritually wash Because we are now to understand that our table is the altar. There is no temple anymore. Our table is the altar, and we are to come to the altar with our hands ritually purified. So we wash in traditional practice before eating and before making mozi. Yes?
8: But isn't there the practical side of it to stop the spread of
2: disease?
1: I don't know. I don't know that. I don't know.
2: I'd like to address that because because we have done this. It's been often used against us when there's been plagues and the Jews have had less plagues because of the (laughs) ritual mandated cleanliness, like before eating or waking up in the morning and washing our hands.
1: I just am not so convinced that cold water put on the hands is a great detergent. I mean, I'm not, I mean, I'm, I don't know about you, but I've been told you have to sing happy birthday twice with <laughs> soap go. and hot water to kill those germs. I, I, I'm not sure that a ritual.
2: Well, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't <laughs> hurt. <laughs>
1: for sure. But but I think what you're, I mean, but the fact that they're, that they, what I think the way it's been used is there's a ritual and a bracha that they were saying that was deemed protective. That's right. That was deemed and they didn't get sick. You know, they have some magic that protects them when, in fact, they died too. I mean, the, the truth is they died, just like everybody else, but nobody wanted to deal with that. <laughs> yes, I see a hand? All right. So, um, so the labor. This is something that's going to ritually purify the priests for service. It is made of copper. Who attended a women's seder where we talked about something made of copper? Oh, Jesus. Oh, Oh, Jesus. Yeah, (laughs) we did that. Yeah, we did, didn't we? (laughs) We talked about this labor at the women's Passover seder. We talked about this labor that is made out of the copper... Hand mirrors. Yeah, this
3: is this was a good one of the that women.
1: Was a
7: good
3: one. Oh
1: yeah. Yes. Of, that's a great. That ah, was two years ago. That's right. Uh, yeah. two, two years ago. Was it two years? Or three years yeah, ago? Whatever one. <clears throat>
3: and that the mirrors were the. Not just like to make sure that women looked like sexy and then would, you know, like have sex with their husbands. Yes. And then. So So let's try to remember, Julie. Let's go into a little
1: more detail. So women (laughs) used the mirrors (laughs) (laughs) to beautify themselves. And then what would they do? Procreate. How they went out into the fields where their husbands were sweaty and dirty and exhausted and tired. Uh And what would she do with the mirror?
9: Hey, look how beautiful I
1: am. She would say, "Look how beautiful I am! I am more beautiful than you." Than you. And then he would say, he would take the mirror and say, "Oh no, I am more beautiful than you." And this game would go on, and they flirted, and then she and she would bring wine and fish. Remember, and these women would bring wine and fish and play this little flirty game with their mirrors, and that led to sex which led to the people procreating even under horribly oppressive circumstances. Aviva Zornberg says these mirrors were used by the women to help the men rediscover their own beauty and their own sexuality because Pharaoh had turned them into beasts of burden who were not interested in sex and who could not find their own Joy and they could not find their own pleasure and their own attractiveness under the grime and grit of slavery. But the women used the mirrors to flirt and to help them rediscover their own beauty and attractiveness, and in that they became sexual beings again, not just slaves.
0: You learn all this at your Seder.
4: We <laughs> did. <laughs> Our seder, Reuben. It was
1: a good, good week after that here in the Palisade for the Jewish community. So, um, so what, why, why do I bring that midrash here? Right. So, because the labor it is, is made of copper. It's extraordinary to me that the midrash is that this labor, and we get it in the text too. Later, we get in the text that it was made from the mirrors of the women, that we have in the Torah text, but the Midrash about this flirting in the field business with the mirrors, how fantastic is it that we are from a tradition that says, what created the basin that would purify the priests for service? The mirrors that enabled these women to seduce their husbands. If there is not a greater piece of evidence for the fact, right, that that we are a tradition that holds beauty and sexuality and pleasure and, right, for good purposes, holds that together with holiness? I, I don't know where there's a better piece of that. Especially on Valentine's Day. Especially on Valentine's Day. Yes. Um, this idea that... <laughs> it's so Jewish, though. Val- it's so Jewish, right? Say <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, if you shake, say, Valentine's tree hard enough, family tree hard enough, a jewel will fall out. So. But it's amazing
3: that what would what would um, purify the the priests who are entering into service is so t- is so connected to what um, buoyed the uh, emotions and the self esteem of men. Hmm. Right. I mean, it's really a, quite a. I mean, it's not even a reach.
1: Right? I mean, for the rabbis, it's not even, I I agree, I don't think it's even a reach. For them to write that midrash means they are reading all of that back into this labor. And that is fantastic for me. But I
6: mean, you could be the Scrooge and say, aha, they did not like these mirrors and what they were doing with them. So they made them give them up and use them. for." No,
1: no, no. They were done with them. They weren't slaves anymore. Yeah, they were, they were done. They're free. They're free people now. It worked. They procreated. It worked. They're free. And now here are these mirrors. What, what should happen to them? Should they just be mirrors that sit on your table? God forbid. They're going to be made into a holy vessel that, that sanctifies the priests for service.
7: It's funny that Pharaoh was most afraid of the Jews procreating and overtaking the land. So obviously, this mirror thing was working. Exactly, he, right. That was the one thing that he was really afraid of.
1: Exactly,
4: exactly. Well, when we were in Italy, I saw how this idea spread. Ruben and I were sitting down for dinner with the group, and there was a pole separating us. So Ruben said, can't we have another seat? And the waiter said, it's okay Reuben." You'll get to your room later.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was Italy, after all. <laughs> and I was uh,
4: happy for them. <laughs> and so happy good. for us. <laughs> all right.
1: Hopefully, Ruben, you showed up and. And made kappa for that dinner. Experience.
0: Do I have to put it in writing?
1: <laughs> Where is it? Indeed not. Um, all right. So let's go to... Uh, I want us... What time are we at? 20 yeah, 10.20. 10.20. Okay. So let's... I have 10 o'clock. Yeah. I want to... <laughs> s- <laughs> uh, I love Ruben. Um, I want to skip over the... Um, The creating of the incense. Uh, It goes into much detail about it. I Um, I don't think we're very good at math. (laughs)
6: 500, wait, half as much, 250, just in case
1: you didn't catch it. There you go. Uh, So we're going to skip that, and I want to go to Chapter 31, because I want to make sure we get here, and often we don't. So someone read chapter 31 at the beginning, please.
7: Adonai spoke to Moses. See, I have singled out by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have endowed him with the divine spirit of skill, ability, and knowledge in every, of craft, every kind of craft to make designs for works in gold, silver, and copper, to cut stones for setting, and to carve wood, to work in every kind of craft, Moreover, I have assigned to him Leop, son of Amisach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have also granted skill to all who are skillful, that they may learn everything that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark for the pact, and the cover upon it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, the pure lampstand and all its fittings, and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, And the labor and its stand, the service vestments, the sacral Mm -hmm. sacral vestments of Aaron the priest Mm -hmm. and the vestments of his sons for their service as priests, as well as the anointing oil and the aromatic incense for the sanctuary, just as I have commanded you, they shall do. Okay. Wow. A lot of
1: stuff. That's a lot of stuff. (laughs) So God says to Moshe, eh, look here. Karati v'shem bitzal El Ben Uri Ben Hur. I have called by name bitzal El, son of Uri, son of Hur. Limate Yehuda, of the tribe of Yehuda. The Amaleoto Ruach Elohim. And I have filled him with Ruach Elohim. What is this? Spirit, Spirit of God. The in wisdom, uvitvuna, with understanding, Uvadat and with knowledge. Remember, knowledge, this is to know as in the biblical sense to know, right? Intimacy, a, a knowledge that is a knowledge of intimacy, of, of knowing someone because, or something because <coughs> you are intimately, right, um, experience, experienced of it malacha, and of every form of malacha seems to imply the malacha that is required for the crafting of the things of the sanctuary, because that's what we get next. Right? So what is the malacha? And then we get all this stuff that is what he's gifted at, right? So with with working with gold and silver and copper or bronze, right? All, all means of dealing with stones, right? All the things that are going to be, all the skills, the talents that are going to be needed for making the stuff of the, of the tabernacle. So, of course, the rabbis have to ask the question, so we talked about this before, right? We, we got this indicated last week or the week before that That people, there was going to be somebody who was chokhmat Lev, right? We talked about this Chokhmah, this wisdom of the heart. Here we see that it's connected in this case somehow to talent.
0: It says here they've used the word skill where you're using the word uh, wisdom. Interesting. I have endowed him with a divine spirit of skill. Interesting. Yes. In your,
1: so your wisdom yes chokhma is wisdom yeah. yes. my guess is they're calling it skill because when you apply wisdom to craft you're talking about kind of a knowledge of the craft you're talking probably about skill i mean i, I think well, it's, it says skill ability and knowledge yeah i think it's related um, what i find interesting is that this is an acknowledgment even at the time of you know torah text that there is something different in the artist. Yes, there's something, there is a Ruach Elohim in artists that is different. So I want to take a look at a connection that I find fascinating between this idea of skill, and knowledge, in terms of a craft. So I'm giving you my notes where I made some connections. This is the gift of the ADD mind. I had been reading something, and then... Connected it to this Parsha, and I could not put my hands on the book. I'm not sure what's happened to it. But it's, the, the book is called The Everyday Work of Art, and it's here in your notes, so you don't have to write that down. The, the Everyday Work of Art by Eric Booth. So go to the B'Tzal El paragraph, your third paragraph, yes? B'Tzal El means in the shadow of God, or in God's image. So the Ramban elaborates on what was so truly remarkable about Bitzal-El. First, while well, the Israelites knew only how to work with the brick and mortar that they had known in Egypt, Bitzal-El could create from silver and gold, could work with gemstones, carve wood, and weave colorful cloth. What's the point of that? Why is Ramban bringing that up? There's something unique and unprecedented in
6: Bezalel. Because? Because he had no he had no
1: experience that the israelites would have had no experience with these things only with bricks and wood okay so El seems to have something that is not related to experience it's God-given. It it is related somehow to god and it is not from having experienced it because where would they have experienced working with gold and silver and precious cloth in egypt right so the What's Ramban's problem? Ramban's problem is how can Bitzalel be skilled in these things when they've just left Egypt, right? So, he's, so Ramban's answer is because it is a God-given gift, an innate talent that El has. Secondly, says Ramban, he understood not only the material form the tabernacle vessels were supposed to take, but the essence and importance of their function. So he not only understood how to craft the items and what they would need to look like and what the technical things were going to be to to be able to create that and cast that out of silver and gold or whatever. But he understood something in a different way than most people about how that was going to function in the life, right, of the, in the ritual life of the people that made his, his creation of them even more skilled. All
2: right.
1: So... It seems that Batsal El has another way of looking at things, right, than normal people. Um, it's not just a talent he's le- some a skill he's learned. It seems to be a way of seeing the potential in things that the rest of us don't see. So, very interesting that this this guy Eric Booth, who wrote this book, *The Everyday Work of Art*, says that the actions of art are driven by an energy that he calls yearning. The actions of art are driven by an energy he calls yearning. Talk to me about that. And he says we all, we all engage in actions of art. Every day.
6: Well, to, to me, what it brings up is a yearning for an expression of something in your soul that just is... Driving to come out in one form or another.
1: And so he distinguishes that from longing. Longing, he says, is something specific. I long for something specific. I long for that prom dress, let's just say. Um, <laughs> I yearn to appear at the dance beautiful and confident and free to dance. No. Do you see the difference?
3: No. I don't see the difference. No. You're, those are two things you just talked about. One is the prom dress
1: and one is to dance at the prom. So he says longing is for something specific. Right. Yearning is something deeper. Yearning is a hunger. A hunger. A yearning the, is a hunger. The, 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 dr- the, the longing is for the dress. Right. Yearning is about... What does that mean? I show up in the dress powerful, confident, free, right? Ready to, you know, be out there in the world. So that's the... The longing is for the dress. The yearning is for what... Beyond that, the hunger, the the spiritual, soulful yearning is about something so much bigger than longing. So I, I don't want to harp on it. I just want to bring it up because... We tend to be very uncomfortable with longing, don't we? We see it as an emptiness. We see it as something's missing. And if I just had enough money to buy that Mercedes, I could answer that that thing in there that is unsatisfied. We live in a culture that constantly sells us things by telling us that that yearning needs to be Satisfied and taken care of. You can't have... Or can be satisfied. Or can be satisfied and taken care of with a material
3: object. Something can be satisfied, but it's not the yearning. Correct. The yearning is something that's just always going to be
1: there. Exactly. So, right. So then look down where it says... This is what I believe the real teaching of Petzalel is, right? So here's the connection I made between this book that I was reading and this Parsha. Is that he had the gift of an ability to follow and keep alive his sense of yearning. And this always leads to actions of art in every moment of every situation we encounter. right? This is Eric Booth's argument is when we stay in touch with yearning, We engage in actions of art In our own lives That the action of art Is really the action Of showing up Differently Being fully present And this is This is beautiful What he he does He says um, Where is it So he says When we really respond To life When we really respond And he He pulls that Word apart As you see um, from re and right ponderay, right. When you put those together, um, it's re means to do something again, right? And this this respond this respond part is about promise. The root of respond of this respond is promise. Spouse, right? We get spouse, sponsor, right? From spondere. Responding to re-promise, to re-commit. So what he says is, when what is a response to life? When we really respond to the moment, to the call, to a person, we're being so present and so there, and so open, and so in touch with yearning, and really, really following that yearning to a place. Where we can experience a person or a moment or the beauty or the sadness or the whatever of something, and out of that fullness of experience, make a promise back with our lives, even just in that moment. That that's what responding means: re-promising, showing up enough to be impacted enough to then make a promise. Back.
0: Rabbi, yeah, can I ask, just the two sentences above where you are now, where it talks about his gift was an ability, who was the he in this gift?
1: Bitzalel. I'm making the connection to Bitzalel. That this spirit of God that is in Bitzalel is this ability to, the artist in him, that is in every one of us. I think that's what compelled me about Booth's. That I was reading at the same time was We are all Bitzal El. If we'll go there, if we will allow ourselves to yearn and to follow the hunger, where is it calling me? Right? We hide from it, we shut it off, we anesthetize, we buy something because it makes us itchy, this yearning. Right? We don't like it in the West. And what he's saying is this is the only way to make art of our lives, is to follow the yearning, to show up to it, to listen to what it's calling us into, and that when we do that, we make a work of art of our lives. And he's beautifully articulate about it. You can go on um, Google, find the book on Amazon, and search inside the book for, for these phrases that you see me, that I quote. Because I, I realize you know you've got the beginning of a paragraph, all of us, and then of course it's not here. But if you even just put all of us, search inside this book and put all of us, you'll find the paragraph. I did it last night. Um, so, but I, but you can't print it, so I couldn't bring it to you. But but look at what he put it. Look at what he says. Booth writes. Julie, read it for us. It says Booth writes, Booth writes. on the back. Keith writes on the back, We complain
3: of a lack of responsibility among people today, particularly among the young. If we attend to the basics, we see that the real deficiency is the ability to respond, that is to notice well and to make and keep a personal commitment back. This is the kind of response ability we need in the nation the skill to create small personal connections to new things and to be committed enough to honor them with a promise back, a promise we keep.
1: So so I guess I agree. I agree. Too. That we talk about a lack, you know, of responsibility, and what he's saying is that's right. That's what we have. We have created a culture and then people impacted by that culture that has taken from them their knowledge of response ability, their ability to really experience something, to be completely open to it, to, you know, to something new, to something wondrous, to something beautiful, and then to make a promise back and keep it.
3: It's so great to think that, like, you can teach the two different kinds of... The yearning, the difference between yearning and longing, or the difference between desire for a thing and desire for um, a a much, you know, something intangible. Connection. Yeah, to make a personal small connection. That's a terrific... That's great. I think longing versus yearning longing does not necessarily
9: always have to be a material thing. You can long for... Too long for things that are not material, but there's something about the word longing that implies scarcity. It comes from a place of like anxiety. Yeah, comes from place of depression
3: or absence of.
9: An absence of, as opposed to yearning seems to be like wanting something in the future. Like you could yearn for a beautiful painting or yearn for world peace, right? It doesn't have to be about something that's missing that you're replacing. It could be something that's of the future. Potential.
4: Yeah.
5: It yearning seems much more like out in the future where longing is more
3: tangible. Mm. I mean or, or or not. But just the the point is that there's two different kinds of or not two, but however many we're talking about. But
9: also that to have to have conviction does kind of start with yearning and sometimes we ignore the yearning, and I think that's true. <clears throat> young kids today, they just don't have enough conviction. <laughs> <laughs> like I think that's what he's trying to say, and they're always apologizing for what they're about to say, kind of thing, like, you see it even in, I don't mean to sound like an old, tragedy person.
1: <laughs> but, well, because we haven't done a very good job of teaching them. We've done a great job of teaching them to achieve. Right. Right? We've done a great job of teaching them to compete. We've not done a great job of teaching them to yearn. Yeah.
4: Blanche? Um, When I retired, and I reached the age of 72, I started painting. And I went for color. Uh, And I created a messy studio, because my kids had left the house and I took one of the bedrooms. And I didn't have to have anything perfect. And I worked with Diane Mm Heino. She put a notice in the bulletin or somewhere that I saw. So for five years, I went to her house on Tuesdays for three hours. And I worked with her and a group of women in her garage. And she was just the teacher for me. She let me be. And then she would come over and say, I like what you're doing here, keep it up. And I was willing to work that way. And so I developed my own
1: way of painting. So as a painter and a poet, Talk to me about yearning.
4: I was yearning to create a place for myself where I was alone and peaceful, and where I could let my thoughts, my yearnings go anywhere. And I did. It's interesting that I started out painting rabbis. Um, <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> <Who knows? Excellent. laughs> and then I went on from there, and I'm happy with the painting of my granddaughter, Ariel, But I never knew. Ariel said to me one day, she's 18 now, Grandma, stop painting. Women. (laughs) So I did was paint women for a while, having babies and all kinds. So I started on abstracts. It's a good suggestion. So, so your 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 original yearning,
1: it sounds to me, like the original yearning that you were in touch with, was for a state of being for yourself. Right? It wasn't about the product it was about a state right and this is critical I think to what he's saying about this the state that we're in is what enables us to create all kinds of art in our lives whether it's literally art or to make art of our lives. What we do here is now, this art paragraph she's, t- she's
3: she's basically saying this paragraph read it. Where it says, you know, you're, she's essentially responding to herself, engaging with herself. This is, that that's that... Re-
1: that idea of... Repromising. Repromising. Mm-hmm. You, you said, I want to engage with my... I want to find what I'm...
3: And let I your I'm
1: yearnings go wherever they would. Right? And, the, and what you started to paint was your own experience. Yes. You were painting women. You were painting your own experience. Like, this is... Right? This is the gorgeousness. We don't know what's going to show up on the canvas of our lives. We have no idea. When we really respond, Wow. Like, we don't know what's going to show up. And that, I think we've crushed that. Gorgeousness like we are so in control all the time. We want so much to control where it's going And what happens at the end that we've lost the ability to just? show up and follow our yearnings and then see What we create and that when we get out of the way Right amazing things can come into the world through us as creative agents, but only when we get out of the way and allow the yearning to be, you know, the emptiness, the ache of that to be what guides us. I just wanted to say, I, when you
9: were saying that thing, I thought it was perfectionism hmm? and how it's such a, such a devil in our lives today because everything's in the media. You know, I think young kids coming up, it's, it's hard to go with your journey to a place that you don't know where it's going to lead you because it's scary. I wonder if it ends up not being perfect, right? And there's such a, you know, people almost need a guarantee it's going to be okay before they even get
1: into it. I think you're so right. I think it's really hard on our kids and on us. Um, and perfectionism also then prevents us from saying, I'm sorry. Because I see that too. That you know, on the one hand, we're afraid to do anything because what if it's not perfect? On the other, it means we can't ever say, "I'm not perfect." We have a really hard time saying, "I messed up," and "I'm sorry." We can't really blame our kids because if we, if they saw us yearning, <laughs> they might have Hundred no percent. We created the culture that formed them. Hundred percent. It is on us
3: it's a dance too I'm so sorry Blue. you can, it's just a dance between the two you know and, and they both exist and you can do both you can teach your kid to do as be as competitive as they want as they can be and to try to you know do as well as they can do but to remember that there's a blank canvas in their lives and they are to fill it the way that to follow their bliss to follow their yearning to follow that hunger who knows what's going to happen here
1: and the connection thank you Julie thank you. For help. setting that up, <laughs> <laughs> um, the connection is that there's a ratio, six to one. The ratio is six to one, people. That's the magic ratio according to our tradition. Malacha, the competition, the homework—you know—all the, the things that they need to do to be productive in the world. Fine, we get it. That's yeah. that's okay. And one day out of Seven is about yearning. One day out of seven is about the practice of the empty space at the center of the Mishkan. Oh God, if we only had gave ourselves the if we day gave day. ourselves yeah. one out of seven, wholly
3: and fully committed. Or if we repromised ourselves to, to not do doing, to but
1: them. to being present. And to figuring out, then, what is the promise I make in response, the world will look different.
0: You can almost say that uh, without Yearning, we wouldn't uh, have art. We wouldn't Mm -hmm. have, have the ability to create something that didn't exist before.
1: Right? So that the... Culture. Go go to the second page the back of the page I just handed you. And there's a sentence that starts maybe a quarter's down the page, no matter how elegant the facility. You see it? Mm-hmm. No matter how elegant the facility, regardless of how expensive its upkeep, there is simply no substitute for human involvement. Our presence is necessary. To give our institutions life and our involvement is necessary to preserve the ancient and wonderful way of life that Judaism provides the world. Judaism understood from the start that holy space without holy time was a mockery of true religion. That's why the pinnacle of creation is Shabbat. Six days were spent creating a place, the world and all it contains, in which holiness could be made real. (laughs) But the fulfillment of the promise of place moves us beyond the tangible into the realm of time. The point then is that even a religion as profound and as joyous as Judaism cannot hope to transform our lives, let alone the world, if we will not invest the time necessary to let it work its wonders on our hearts.
6: How does a rabbi do that When you're working Friday night And Saturday morning And Saturday afternoon I'm sorry Does someone else have a question? (laughs) (laughs) Let alone Um, soccer practice And oh the sleepovers and Okay this week Okay
1: um, For me it's about Monday Hmm. That Monday is Shabbat And it is sanctified It is sacred And unless there is an SUV that rolls over, mm-hmm. and I got to get to the ICU. I don't do anything. Like I really, really, really don't have meetings. I really don't make commitments. And that's my, you know, that's my. Like Sunday night, I'm like it's Arab Shabbos. Mm-hmm. Right? I I'm like whoo, whoo. I Sunday do a little Sunday dance. Night. Like I yeah. love everyone else hates Sunday night, right? I gotta
6: what, what, what,
4: can, what, can what. set
1: aside whatever space you set aside. Because the kid goes to school. Judy's retired, so. Right. You know, Sunday night to Monday at three o'clock when that kid's out of school, and actually we hire a sitter to pick her up at three, and we go out to dinner.
3: Nice.
1: Um, so that we really have that that time because it's you you have to have Shabbat. You have to have it with your kid too. Um, but so that right, so that's the challenge. So that's the challenge, right? Having Shabbat with her is much more of a challenge. Um, and in, and in that sense, I don't have Shabbat with a community, which is also sometimes a challenge. Um, but I get to do Shabbat in certain ways with this community, you know, like Friday mornings for me are a fantastically rich experience of exactly what we're talking about. You know, the artistry and the gorgeousness of what we do here together and the way that that shifts me out of the, you know, the grind the grind, and the thinking and the planning and the worrying and the whatever. And then this is followed by our meditation class. And it is true that I always
6: feel like I never know what I'm going to get. Uh, that out of this hour, you know, I always, I know that there's going to be something, and I, you know, and yeah, I don't know whether it goes, if you call it going sideways or not, but it's always, it's that unpainted canvas. It's the, it's if it, the
3: end, yeah. absolute emblematic of what everything we're talking about here is: this tourist the, the fact that humans come in to be engaged. We don't know what's going to happen. We have no control over what's going to happen, and yet, mm-hmm.
1: something. something happens. <laughs> happens <right? laughs> and, and I have no idea either.
3: The
5: best is when. It get, goes, the canvas goes in a direction of really learning about the others in here mm-hmm. and the lives that they have and the generational, um, there's like not a generational divide, even though we have multi-generations in here, that canvas is so clean and it's so neat when it goes in that direction that you can leave and be imparted by you know other people's gamins.
1: And I was talking to a bar, a bar mitzvah student yesterday, and we talked. We were talking about elders, and he said, "I don't know any old people, except my grandparents." Like we were talking about, and, and I said, "It is a really serious problem in our culture." I said, "And it's one of the reasons I love Ki. It's one of the few places left where, when you come in here." It isn't a generational divide. Now, there are generational experiences, but it's one of the few places that we talk across the generations still. And I find that to be one of the most critical components of what it means to have this place, right? Is that we cross-pollinate. You know, we, we have the talking across the generations and the sharing across the generations that is so important and special and doesn't happen for us organically. Yeah. Just about anywhere... And I don't
5: know why I was so surprised about that when I started coming here, because I had a really unique relationship with my granny. And, you know, while a lot of people, you know, spending time with their grandparents is a chore. It was never a chore for me, ever. It was like I, I really loved it. And the generation, I mean, like the imparting of knowledge and all that stuff and just... the And we don't get it anymore. Yeah, so I don't even know why that was surprising to me, but I was like, yeah, oh my
4: gosh.
5: <laughs> that's of my, that's
1: um, and the other thing I want to say about what you said about learning from people in the room is um, there's this wonderful... Peter Pitzala talks about, and when he does Bibliodrama, he says, when we read the text, the text for us is always a mirror. Right? We, whatever we confront Torah, it's always different for us. That's why we can do this every single year. And as Rabbi Rubin likes to point out, we've been doing it for 3,000 years. You know, we take that book out every week. We take that scroll out every week. How can we still read something 3,000 years later? Because it's a mirror. We're always different. You know, what we see is always based on our experience. But Peter Pitzela says, what to me is a mirror, to you is a window.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: When we share what we see in the text... What we see in our mirror, what we provide for someone else, is a window into that text that wouldn't be there without. I mean, and it's to me that that is exactly it. That's the that's the beauty of what we do here. Is for me, it can only be a mirror. But when you talk, now it's a window.
0: In, in my generation in the ancient days <laughs> it was not uncommon for three generations to still live in one house right, right.
1: Yeah. that's right yeah. and people grew up knowing their their grandparents intimately in terms of just casual conversation mm-hmm. right they they interacted naturally together and um, and it's it's a serious place of poverty for us
8: i Paula. on on the other hand i think is particularly in the Jewish community, there's been on many occasions since, since the 1900s a cutting off of generations, where there was a cutting off of grandparents, a cutting off because of the Holocaust, because of immigration in the early 1900s, because of pogroms, where people, and so, Mm-hmm. I know I can say that for my family, that my parents sort of didn't know how to have an older generation.
1: Interesting. And
8: That's and so so mm-hmm. We don't have a history of generations, and because we never, mm-hmm. we didn't learn it in our families because there was a cutoff.
1: Interesting. And the tr- right this
8: is something that. Mm-hmm. Affects many, many families too.
4: You were lucky that you had. Right. that. I have
5: to oh. tell you, I know how lucky I am because I'm married to someone who never had grandparents, and I, I don't yeah. say this to him, but I always go like, "Oh, that's so sad," you know, that you had never had that experience. And for those that are grandparents here, I am telling you, you will make a mark if you take the time to spend. With your grandchild because it is a relationship that um, it, it's indescribable how I feel about my grandma my granny I mean it is it's like and then how I know she felt about me and I mean she she died uh, right after 9-11 and I was very very sad but I had her for 36 years and I just—it's um, uh, a gift.
1: Well, it's and to, a major gift. And I want to be, but I really want to be clear that you don't have to have been given biological grandparents no, you to do ex- to answer time, exactly that cutoff. Spend time with any cultivating of relationships generation. of intention and choice are the answer to what you're talking about and to David's, you know, not having had that. That I really That's want right. us to create those relationships intentionally. We create them in this room. You should
5: create them for your kid if you That's parents exactly aren't right. around to have someone of another generation because the gift is just it's priceless. It's priceless. Mm-hmm. And and I hope all the grandparents here really know what they're imparting. Mm-hmm.